love our Thanksgiving project. That is an incredible, incredible thing that we do, getting out, embracing our city. And it's very, very neat. So we love Thanksgiving. And Abby uh, is from originally born in Birmingham, grew up in Raleigh, and she can cook a casserole. I mean, Thanksgiving is her holiday, and that girl breaks out with like six or seven casseroles, and you know, we really need two ovens around Thanksgiving because there's so many casseroles rolling out of our house, and everybody loves Abby's casseroles. Last Thanksgiving, uh, my parents were going to be out of town. I don't have no idea where they were, but Abby and I decided we were going to throw Thanksgiving at um, our house, which we don't often do. And we got really excited about it, and we have this, um, it's this carport at our house, and we decided that we were going to make this carport into an area where groups of people could gather and eat and sort of interact over life and meals. And uh, so we came up with this idea, we're going to hang these um, lights in our carport, so we strung these lights, these kind of like golf ball sized lights, and I sort of drug my feet, and I was like, Abby, really? And they look so good. It looks so good. And then I actually came up with the idea on the edge of the carport. I'm going to take credit for this idea, baby. On the edge of the carport, we hung these um, windows, like old-fashioned kind of windows, and it just begins to make it feel like a living room. So we put an old rug out there, and then we, we ran tables down the center of our carport, and we could seat 25 people for last Thanksgiving. And it was really neat because it was my, uh, my grandmother, I called her Memes, but her name was Jenny Mattis. It was her last Thanksgiving with us. It was really special that we could do that at our house. Out back, we had a uh, fire pit, and so we had a fire going, and we had cider on and hot chocolate, and we had hobo pies over the fire. You ever had a hobo pie? I love, I mean, I'm telling you, I love a hobo pie. A hobo pie is something that you have to work out all week so you can eat it at the end of the week. It is the real deal. But a hobo pie is this cast iron thing that you, that, 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 like, you take two pieces of bread and you butter them, a lot of butter, and you, you put them in this cast iron thing and then you load it with cheese and meat. Or you can, you can go like real sweet, load it with apple pie and some, you know, pecans and cinnamon. And you close this, this little cast iron thing, and then you hold it over the fire. The kids love it. We love it. Take this thing out, and it's like a perfect baked little hobo pie. I don't know. It is absolutely wonderful. If you haven't tried a hobo pie, you got to try a hobo pie sometime. So we're in the middle of all this preparation. We're getting ready. And we started like a week ahead of time. And I got about halfway through the week, and I started grumping just a little bit. Like, hey, this is, are we really, what, what did we spend on that? And you know, when it came down to Thanksgiving, Abby's brother and, and his wife joined us, their, their kids, and Abby's parents, and then my sister and her husband and their kids came, and we had a number of people from around the city who came. And when it came down to it, the amount of work and preparation and love that went into that Thanksgiving was matched only by the relationships and the community that all that preparation facilitated. John the Baptist was sent to make preparations for Christ Jesus. He was sent ahead. He was sent to be a forerunner. He was sent to prepare the way of Christ Jesus so that sort of the road for Christ Jesus to the cross, ultimately to a resurrection, was paved. That's what he did and that's who he was 
Myrtle Grove is a forerunner church. We always have been. We always have been. As I look back across our history, we have been a church over the ages that is always pushing out beyond our walls, doing something new. We think of Doug Wright just coming back, just having finished a translation, Doug and Beth, a 25, 28-year project. I think of Peggy Laney years gone by with her work in Eastern Europe. I think of Charlene Thomas Moretz. Some of you remember her, some of you don't. I actually went when I was 10 years old here at this church. Believe that, I was a little guy with more hair. (laughs) Charlene, I remember she called my mom and dad. I was 10 and she took me on a mission trip. Jay Stump was on that trip too. Phil and Jane, I don't know if you guys are back there today, but Jay was on that trip with us. And she took us on a trip when I was 10 years old to the heart of inner city Raleigh, and we served families and kids like real missions work. This church has such a rich history of sending people out, of full-time missionaries on the field. See, Myrtle Grove has always been a forerunning church, and if you'll permit me, I want to take us back to the future today, because that's who we're called to be as we move forward. A forerunning church, much like John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus. We are called to be a church that paves the way for Christ Jesus in our communities and in our city of Wilmington. And then as individuals, we are called to be forerunners of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So I want to pull out of John 1, 19 through 28 that we just read, four keys that make John the Baptist a forerunner of Christ and how I think we as a church and we as individuals can do likewise. Can we do that? All right. Okay, so the Gospel of Luke tells us that the angel of Gabriel, angel called Gabriel, appeared to Zachary, uh, Zachariah, I'm going to call him Zachary, that's John's dad, okay? And uh, he tells Zachariah that he and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. Okay, this is before John the Baptist was even born. And Zechariah was a priest in, in that day, and um, he basically questioned and almost scoffed at the angel Gabriel because they were so old. He was like, no way. And the angel Gabriel did not take lightly to that, and he struck Zechariah like dumb. He couldn't speak. He muted him until the baby, John the Baptist, was born. For real. No joke. That's serious, isn't it? Teach us to have faith in Jesus. So... Um, the gospel of, of Luke goes on to tell us that uh, G- Gabriel, the angel, says to John's dad, John the Baptist, little John when he's born, is to take the vow of a Nazarite. You guys ever heard of that vow of a Nazarite? Some of you have, I'm sure. Okay, few of us, not many. All right, I want to tell you about that just for a second. And the first thing that I think John the Baptist was that we as a church are called to and we as individuals are called to is to be consecrated holy to God. I know that's a big word, consecrated. It just means dedicated. It means wholly committed. It means that I'm going to throw my entire being into Christ Jesus and I'm not going to hold little areas of my life back. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? We all are like, yeah, I'll walk with you, Jesus, mostly. But I like to look at stuff on my phone when nobody else is around. Or I'm not going to tithe. It's my money, Jesus. Or I'm not going to go over there and help that person. I'm not going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm not going to step across the political aisle and love somebody of a different persuasion. You hear me? 
Like it gets, it gets real. Like loving Jesus gets real. And God is calling us. What happens when a group of believers gets so um, charged by the power and presence of Holy Spirit in our lives is they begin to touch people around them. And that's, that's the seeds of revival that begin to be birthed. But it's got to happen here first. It's got to happen in our hearts so that it can happen out there. So number six, I'm not going to go there. You can do it on your own time if you like, but it tells us a little bit about the call of a Nazarite. So thing number one, consecrated wholly to God. The call of a Nazarite was really a relatively simple thing, um, but it was either for a specific length of time or the entirety of one's life. So John the Baptist took the Nazarite call. The Old Testament prophet Samuel was a Nazarite. Samson the judge was also a Nazarite. And it was a formal oath, sort of swearing whole service to God. All of me. Take it all, Jesus. Every single part of my life I give to you. The first thing they did, which is interesting to me, but they abstained from all alcohol. I'm not calling us necessarily to do that today, but I would call you to listen to the Holy Spirit. But a Nazarite abstained from all alcohol, liquor, vinegar, wine. Probably would even pertain to that kombucha tea stuff my sister likes to drink. (laughs) Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's okay. It's not even alcohol. It's just a brewed beverage. But the point is that John the Baptist, a Nazarite, was called to abstain from all, all alcohol. Number two, he was called to let his hair grow uncut for the entire length of the vow. Uncut. Jack, you and I would be in bad shape, wouldn't we? We'd have a skullet going on. But John the Baptist and Samson and even Samuel had to let that hair grow. Thirdly, they must not come in contact with any corpse. This was serious. The corpse would have been unclean. So if someone would have passed away in John's family, he probably couldn't have gone to the funeral. There's a serious, serious vow that, that God, you know, called certain people to take. So in this total consecration to God, as I'm studying all this, I begin to dig into Exodus and also Leviticus, and I found this very fascinating. The Old Testament high priest actually wore a turban on his head. Some of us have become maybe prejudiced or judgmental to people who wear those. So I just want to say... The Old Testament high priest wore a turban on his head. I just just take a, make a note, make a note. God's called us to love all people, all races, all, all. He means all. And on the front of that turban, there was a little gold plate. And on it was inscribed the root word, the root Hebrew word uh, for Nazarite, Nazir or Nazir. Um, and it actually meant consecrated holy to God what it meant the very high priest and I don't want to go too far into this but here's what I want to say the high priest in the old testament would have been the only one who was allowed to enter into that most holy place in the temple the only human on the face of the earth allowed to fully enter into the presence of God making that person maybe the most important or most significant or whatever words you want to put there the most significant person on the face of the earth at that time Now, fast forward a few years, Christ gets crucified on a cross. That's why we have it big, front and center on our stage. And it's an empty cross because Christ rose from the dead. 
He rose from the dead, and we serve a living Jesus. But Second Peter or First Peter two nine tells us that we all are called to be a royal member. Old Testament high priest wears a turban on his head. He's got that little plaque that says root root word consecrated unto God. Today, we've all become high priests. We've all become that royal priesthood. We are all called to be wholly consecrated every single area of our lives. How we interact with our wives, how we interact with our husbands, how we interact with our children, the tone of voice that we use. How we interact with our neighbors, who we are when no one is looking, when you're grumpy and tired and you fill in the blank. We're called to be holy, consecrated. Lord Jesus, here am I. Take every part, every aspect of my life. The second part of, uh, of John the Baptist that moves me is Humility. So the first would be holy, whole consecration unto God. Total dedication to God, number one. Number two is humility. I love, I love John the Baptist's humility. And what's interesting is humility is not a lack of courage. Humility has to do with elevating Christ Jesus. Putting Christ Jesus up and we us are down. Christ is, is put on the sort of the throne of our hearts, if you will. What I also want to sort of suggest to you today is prior to Jesus, and I'm not going to go into a, a long, if I can get my, there we go. I'm not going to go into a, a long thing on this, but prior to Christ Jesus, the ethic of the day was hubris, pride, self-aggrandizement. I'm going to elevate myself. I'm going to lift myself up. And Jesus brought a totally different ethic of humility. And John the Baptist started carrying it. I could take you through the whole thing. We talk about Homer's Iliad, Homer's Odyssey. We could talk about Greco-Roman literature of the day. It was all about pride. It was all about elevating oneself. And what Jesus suddenly brings to the table, what he brings to earth is the uh, service. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to And give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus sort of flipped the entire earth on his ear. So much so that even today when we go to a football game, who do we usually like to root for? The underdog. (laughs) Who said, what did you say over here? (laughs) Even here in America, so many years after the resurrection of Christ Jesus, it, everything has been flipped where what we value at some level is humility. We value service. And Christ Jesus flipped all that. It was like a mark in time where everything changed. It's fascinating to me because Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew 10, I'm not going to turn there, but he said, among those born of women, there is no one greater that's my, excuse me, mind-boggling to me. There is no one greater. John the Baptist's ministry was very short. It was just a few months long. And Jesus says, among those born of women, there was no one greater. And I want to propose to you that it was because of this incredible humility that this man walked in. He elevated Christ Jesus. I must decrease, Christ must increase. Increase. 
Incredible, incredible humility. You know, if we're honest, we probably all struggle with this at times. Abby and I were talking the other day and I had a donuts with dads thing at the school that I was supposed to go to. And supposed, you guys already caught that, didn't you? <laughs> and uh, I, I've never, I always go to these things. I'm very good at volunteering at the kids' school. I get over there, man, I am, I am all about it. I'm like, dads, you need to get involved in schools. In fact, granddads, you need to get involved in schools. You need to go visit your grandkids and have lunch with them. If you think they don't want you there, well, take a pizza. I'm, I'm really serious. Take a pizza. And you tell me, well, they're in middle school and they don't like me. Well, take a pizza and guess what's going to happen? They're going to like you. Take them a Chick-fil-A sandwich. I mean, serious, meet them where they are. But dads and granddads, can I just say, we got to be in our schools. We have got to be in our schools. This is a little bit of a detour, but we have got to be carrying the presence and the life of Christ Jesus into the schools of New Hanover County. And if you got kids or grandkids in school, you get there. You get there. You sit with them at lunch. You talk to them. You ask their friends questions. Don't go tell them who to vote for. (laughs) Don't go tell them what they should or shouldn't be doing. You go relate to them. You sit there and look at them and ask a few questions. What's next? What'd you do in your last class? What's happening on the playground? Talk to them. Relate to them. See, Christ Jesus in the Bible is really, really wild to me, but Christ Jesus in the Bible always put relationship way above dictating the rules to people. He put relationship, and so often I'm already falling into it as a dad. I told Abby the other day, baby, I gotta watch this. I become corrective and instructive and teacher, and I stop being a friend, relater, get down when Stephen's having problems. I, I told Abby the other day, next time Stephen's having, there's a little issue we've been having, next time he has a problem, I'm gonna get down on my belly and just play Legos with him. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does with us. That's, that's the humility I'm talking about here. Jesus came and he ate with sinners. Guess who he didn't like? Guess who Jesus had problems with? Church people. That was a good way to say it. He had problems with church people. Amen. I agree. Way to go, Ben. Guess who's in the greatest risk? My name's on a plaque on down or on a little door thing, and I have an office, and I get on my knees once in a while and go, Jesus, don't let me become religious and focus just on making people do right or act right or think right or behave right, but make me a vessel of you. Make me so relationally focused that I am after the people that don't know you. There is a risk, Myrtle Grove, that we become religious and stuck in our house, sticking our nose up and looking at what the rest of the world is or isn't doing. God has called us to love. Jesus ate with sinners. I could take you to passage after passage after passage. He ate with sinners before he corrected them. He built relationship. Back to my story. Donuts with dads. So this thing was, Abby put this on our calendar and I was supposed to go to Donuts with Dads. Remember, I'm talking about humility. That's number two, John the Baptist, number two. Number one, consecration. Number two, humility. 
Abby put this thing on the calendar. I looked at the calendar. Somehow I missed it. Guess what I did? I grumped at Abby. Well, it wasn't on the counter. What do you mean? Huh? And she's like, you didn't go? What do you mean I didn't go? And all of a sudden, I find myself raring up. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? You know that rare up? If you're not shaking your head, I'm going, you're not human. <laughs> we bow up as humans, but that is the moment. In that bow up moment is, is Christ Jesus really Lord of your life? Every single area where you don't have to bow up and get defensive and stamp on somebody else's toes. You hear me? You check that bow up. Abby and I almost have a race in our house about who can ask each other's forgiveness first. See, because when we ask forgiveness, I've talked to people about this. When you ask forgiveness of Christ Jesus, you are activating the finished work of the cross in your life. I can't wait to ask God's forgiveness for something because it means that all of a sudden the entire power and presence of Jesus rushes in to the life of Michael and begins to redeem and restore and make all things new and make relationships new. And all of a sudden, Holy Spirit is all over. That's good stuff. It is good to ask forgiveness. So at the end of that, I had to go, baby, will you forgive me? Some of us are suffering in our marriages because of our lack of humility. We are. Some of you, some of us, some of me. Some of us are suffering in our relationships with our kids and even our grandkids because of our lack of humility. Some of us are spending so much time telling our kids what they should and shouldn't do that we're missing relationship with them. Jesus ate with the sinners first. John the Baptist called people to Christ. He related to them and he carried great humility. I want you to think of a family member just in your mind that things are difficult with. It might be a brother or sister, it might be a mom, it might be a son or a daughter, it might be a grandchild. Just think of someone. When was the last time you sat with them and you focused just on relating to them in humility? Not teaching, not correcting not telling them what to do, not telling them who to vote for, not just relating, just loving, just extending grace, just extending the peace of Christ. When you have relationship, guess what happens next? You can begin to teach and instruct, but you always connect and relate first. Always, always, always. I've already said it, but I want to remind you that Jesus ate with sinners while they were still sinners. Remember that Jesus didn't come for the healthy, but for who? The sick. I think that was almost, had a, I'm not a sarcasm guy, so maybe it wasn't a sarcastic comment on Jesus' part, but it was a comment that was full of irony. Because his point was, we're all sick. And if you think... You didn't, you're not one of the ones that Jesus came for because you've cleaned up the outside and you put on a jacket and a pressed shirt. You got another thing coming. We're all sick. And Jesus is in a process of conforming us all who are willing to the likeness and image of Christ. All right, number three. Number one, whole consecration to God. Number two was total humility. Number three, 
is a daily attitude of fasting and prayer. John the Baptist carried a daily attitude of fasting and prayer. I don't know how to do this. I have trouble praying sometimes. Can I just be that honest? It's hard sitting down, going through your prayer list. But John the Baptist carried this like every day. He wore camel hair. Like I, and I actually think I did a little research on this. I think he actually wore a camel skin because camel hair was taken off the neck of a camel and woven together. And it was really kind of a luxurious fabric, apparently, maybe like a camel hair jacket now. Um, but I think he actually wore a, a, a camel skin, a tanned camel hide, which was really scratchy. He wore a leather belt, really fascinating. He wore the exact same outfit that Elijah wore in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 1.8, look it up sometime. He wore the exact same thing. And see, he did that because for the first time in 400 years, there's been 400 years of silence. And for the first time, a prophet has appeared in Israel and the people know it. He's speaking the language of heaven and the people are beginning to engage with him around it. His camel hair was probably symbolic of the sackcloth and ashes that would be used in times of fasting. It's almost like burlap. He ate a diet of locusts and honey. Fascinating to me. He ate grasshoppers. We ate crickets at a science museum with the kids once, but they were these really tiny things and they were dunked in so much spices you didn't even know they were anything but popcorn. John the Baptist ate locusts and honey. Now, I think his ministry was relatively short, so it's possible he actually ate that for the duration of his ministry. His whole thing was about fasting and prayer. John came dressed like an Old Testament prophet. He talked like an Old Testament prophet. He smelled like an Old Testament prophet. He looked like an Old Testament prophet. He lived out in the wilderness and he came to get the attention of the people and to really build a super highway to Christ Jesus himself. I want to mention for a moment the point of abstaining from wine. I think this is fascinating. John the Baptist abstained from wine in this daily attitude of fasting and prayer. And I think it really is a picture of a refusal to engage in the temporal luxury and excesses. I'm not saying we can't have a glass of wine, but I'm saying there is a siren's call in our culture that calls us to live lives that are squishy, soft, and full of excesses. I want to be found. I mean, this life is so short. I was thinking if I took a Sharpie marker and started drawing here and went all the way around the eastern horizon and came all the way up over the western and stopped back here all the way around the globe and then put a little tiny Sharpie dot on my line. That's what our life on earth is like, this little dot. God has called us to carry eternity in our hearts. God has called us in every situation, in every interaction, to be carriers of eternity. And part of the way I think that's done is that attitude of fasting and prayer. So John embraces this life of service and sacrifice rather than a life of ease. I said it, but our culture is like a siren's call, luring us away from the centrality of Christ, the new car, the new house. The Kate Spade purse, and we love Kate Spade purses. The new shoes, the new boat, the raise at work, the pornography. Come on. 
See, some of our relationships are suffering because we are not carrying that daily attitude of fasting and prayer, that dependence on Christ Jesus. I was talking to, this is interesting, I was talking to Linda Britton. Jack and Linda, are you guys here today? They're not. That's probably good. I was talking to Linda Britton, and she told me the sweetest story of Jack. The sweetest, I mean, I was, I was undone. If you know Jack, he's a big man. There's not many people that I look up to, but I look up, I mean, literally look up to Jack. He's a big guy, and he's loud. He's got a booming voice. He can be a little intimidating. Linda said he gets up every morning and makes her breakfast and brings it to her in bed. You believe that? Jack Britton, is that the same guy we all know? Yes, it is. He has got a teddy bear heart in there and he brings her breakfast. And Linda was sitting there telling me, Michael, you would never believe it. I I just sit up and I put two or three pillows behind my back and I just sit there and he brings me my little breakfast tray and I take my jam and I smear it on my toast. And then I open my Bible and I'm having quiet time with Jesus. It is so good. The only reason I'm even saying this is we get so me-centered and me-focused in our relationships and start grumping at our spouses for what they're not doing, don't we? Come on. Or our kids, or our grandkids. See, this attitude of fasting and prayer that John had shifts you out of that me-centeredness into an other-centeredness and what other-centered people all have in common what people who choose to live sacrificial lives to the benefit of those around them is they're happier. Can I just say that? It's total aside. They're just happier people because they're not navel-gazing at themselves. They're focused on carrying Jesus. Husbands, God might be calling you to do something like make breakfast for your wife when she's in bed or clean a bathroom or make dinner, or wash the dishes. Come on. Son of man came not to be, but to... Ooh, Jesus! All right. Number four. So number one, we have holy consecrated to God. Number two, we have incredible humility. Number three, we have this attitude of prayer and fasting. And number four, we have seeking those. John constantly sought those who were far from God. Constantly. John's entire life was about touching those who were way away from God. Mark tells us, this is crazy to me. Mark tells us literally, I'm not going to read it, but I am going to quote it, that the whole Judean countryside... And all, didn't say some, it said all of those in Jerusalem went out to see John. So let's let's put that into some Wilmington terms. New Hanover County, I think, has around 230 or 240,000 people. Then we got, you know, Pender and we got Brunswick and we have some different counties around here. If, If Pastor Jim or Pastor Steve was down on the intercoastal or maybe down on the Cape Fear River, dunking people in the water and calling them to be to repent and baptized, literally hundreds of thousands of people would be going out there and gathering to see this crazy sight of a dude who eats locust and honey and wears camel hair. And yet people's lives are being transformed. 
fascinating. We get so worked up about numbers. How many are attending? How many aren't attending? How many are attending that year? Who cares? It's about seeking those who are far from God. And if we as a church begin to focus on those who are far from God, engaging them, reaching out to them, loving them at every opportunity, guess what's going to happen? Just like the people came to John the Baptist, they will come to us as believers. They will seek us out. (coughs) True confession. You ready? I was at the uh, movies last night with Abby. We went to a 735 movie. Yep. Well, that's not my confession. I love movies. Uh, so I was, we were at the movies. We went at 710 because we like to get there early and sit in a good seat. So I got sit, sat in a good seat, sit in a good seat. I, I, we sat in a good seat. And then um, the movie theater started filling up and then filling up more. And then filling up more. And I'm, I'm just the guy that I like to have a chair on this side of us and a chair on that side of us. And I never thought of myself as, you know, I don't know, but I'm getting that way apparently. And all of a sudden everybody starts squishing in and we got we to gotta scoot closer and closer to people. And all of a sudden I'm elbow to elbow with this big guy next to me. He's probably about my age. He might be a couple years younger and he's got a big beard and they have this big thing of popcorn and all of a sudden they dump their popcorn all over the place. I mean, everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. And then like throughout the movie, this girl's like just rubbing on his head. And, just, oh, <laughs> and I mean, I am sitting there like, oh my God. And then the dude falls asleep. He's like, he's like 30. I don't know. He's probably younger than me. He's snoring. And I am, I am so grumpy. And then, get this, the girls on the other side of us had scootered in really close to Abby. And they were so kind because they had turned the ringer on their cell phone off. However, they had turned a strobe light on their cell phone on every time they got a message. So we're sitting there in the movie theaters and I got, you know, homeboy over here. And then the girl rubbing on his ear and his head and and popcorn. And then over here, we had these two people. And like, I kid you not, every three or four minutes, her strobe light goes. And she's texting somebody else. And and I literally sat there. I thought, "I'm, I'm becoming an old grumpy man. And I had to repent. That's where it gets real. As I had to go, Lord Jesus, you are concerned with the people around us. And we in America are at risk of becoming so self-centered. I'm leading the conga line here. That we begin to neglect and even omit the opportunities that Christ Jesus has given us to impact the people around us. We're on a mission This church is on a mission. In the old days, this church, we all used to exit out the double doors out front. You know, there's a sign above those double doors. If you exit out front, what's it say? Who knows? You're now entering the mission field. I assume that was a Peggy Laney thing. I didn't find out for sure before I preached. You are now entering the mission field. See, God has called us to seek those who are far from him. And everything on planet earth pales when we go after the kingdom of God and we maintain a focus on eternity. 
We're in a painful time as a country. There's a lot going on. We as a church need to be aware, no matter how we voted, no matter what we believe, I'm a man of deep convictions. But we need to be aware of the way the people around us are feeling and we need to engage them. There are subcultures of people around this country who are feeling put out and put down. I'm not saying they're right, but it's how they feel. And we all know that people's perception is their reality, don't we? I have a couple of friends who are living in a homosexual lifestyle and they feel scared to death that their freedom is going to get taken away. I have a couple friends who are illegal immigrants to this country and they're scared to death right now. Abby and I have personally sat down and talked to several women who are feeling like the glass ceiling will never be broken above them. I'm not saying any of those perspectives are right, but here's what I am saying. We have an opportunity to love people, to eat with people, to welcome people into our lives, to reach out to the guy that's snoring next to us at the movie theater, to choose to live a life of humility, a life that is focused on people far from God, a life of whole, total abandonment to Christ Jesus. Church, God has called us to influence this city. That starts with every interaction we have. The presence and power of our living Jesus is in us. And he wants to live his life through us. Can we go with him on that? Dean, will you begin to play? And let's close our eyes for a second. As eyes are closed, you might be here today and you have never wholly given your life to Jesus. I don't mean part of it, but I mean holy, holy, every part. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna ask you to come down front, but I wanna give you an opportunity. Eyes are closed, heads are bowed, people aren't moving around. I wanna give you an opportunity to lift up your hand and acknowledge before heaven, and that's the only reason, is you need to acknowledge before heaven that there's a line in the sand in your life and from here forward you are wholly giving yourself to Jesus, asking him to be Lord of your life. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Just raise it and slip it down. We see those hands. We see those hands. More importantly, heaven sees those hands. Church, let's stand together. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and in our minds. Dean, let's worship with a closing song.